0: Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. I want to start today's episode by discussing some housekeeping business. Early this year, I made a pact with you, my listeners, and myself, to be honest, to provide more consistency in the frequency and time in which I post new episodes. For the most part, I've lived up to these aspirations while periodically life has happened and I've had to delay my posting schedule. I appreciate everyone's understanding when these situations have come up. I missed last week, so this week I will be posting two episodes, one today, which is an interview with the wonderful Dr. Kim Bancroft, and one on Wednesday, which continues our series on politics in California. Let's get to today's episode. Kim Bancroft earned a BA in English from Stanford, an MA in English, and a teaching credential from San Francisco State University, and a doctorate in education from UC Berkeley. She has taught at high schools and community colleges in the Bay Area and at the University of Mexico, as well as Sacramento State. In 2014, Kim edited the 1890 autobiography of her great-great-grandfather Hubert Howe Bancroft, founder of the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley. Her edited version was published by Hayday Books, titled Literary Industries, Chasing the Vanishing West. She also wrote a biography of the founder of Hayday Books called The Hay Day of Malcolm Margolin, The Damn Good Times of a Fiercely Independent Publisher. Her new book, which is the subject of this podcast, is called Writing Themselves into History, Emily and Matilda Bancroft in Journals and Letters, which covers the literary lives of the two wives of H.H. H. Bancroft. Please enjoy our conversation. Dr. Bancroft, do you keep a diary?
1: I, I do. I have since I was about 10 years old, ever since I read Harriet the Spy, even before I read Harriet the Spy.
0: What What's the value in keeping diaries for you?
1: For one thing, it's about getting to un, unburden myself. I think a lot of it over the years has been the place where I go where I feel like someone is listening to me, especially when I was growing up in a loud dysfunctional family with three obnoxious brothers whom I love dearly now, but it's always been been that place. And also a place to work out what am I doing with my life and what's just happened in this relationship and where am I going with the class that I'm teaching or with this book I'm writing. So it's always been a, a place for thinking things through.
0: Yeah. And I'm asking these for specific reasons because we're going to talk a lot about history and family's history and genealogy and thinking about your own history, but also creating historical records. And I, you know, we have a proliferation of information, but so, so much of it is outward facing, it's performative, whereas diaries oftentimes are safe places for vulnerability and i often wonder about this as we are going to talk about some of your ancestors' diaries if some of the performative nature of the way we write about ourselves is going to make our era so opaque to future generations of historians looking at it that i wonder if there will actually be ironically a dearth of information authentic information about people's you know inner selves do you think that that's the case
1: That's a really great question. I'm not sure because I think that a lot of what people do on social media, and I don't follow a lot of social media, is to try to unburden themselves and make who they are known to the world because they may feel super isolated, whether it's as a gay person or a trans person or somebody living isolated in a rural place where nobody speaks their language. So I do think that those kinds of social media that serve as a self-revelation are are valuable or could be valuable. I don't know how much people are writing down those things the way we used to. And I certainly would be a little nervous about people seeing what I've written in my diaries because it is so personal and it's not meant to be seen. It's meant to be shut in a book and tucked away. And, and actually, I've often thought it's another good question that you asked is because of the the information that I put into the book about my great-great-grandmother and her predecessor. Those, I think, were meant to be seen by some people. So they weren't exactly like the kind of writing I do, which is really not meant to be seen by anybody until at least 25 years after I'm dead.
0: Hmm. Let's talk about you as a writer. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, when you're in the environment that changes the environment, and you're both in the environment and trying to observe the environment. How do you think about your relationship to the subject matter vis-a-vis your two books on the Bancroft family?
1: Well, that's a good question too. The first book was actually Literary Industries by my great-great-grandfather, and it was his autobiography. So I did not insert myself except to edit out a lot of what he said because it was an 800 page book
0: <laughs> well that's still and making choices right that's making well, choices exactly about making
1: inclusion. choices yes and so the choices I made were reflective of my modern sensibilities he wrote those 800 pages assuming that people had time to read that much. And they did back in the day when there wasn't television and radio and all the other entertainments that we have. But that allowed him to go on and on about certain topics like his hatred for the railroads or newspapers or other topics that you get enough of that. And and that's, that's enough. I was trying to focus on his upbringing and what led him to be a bookseller in San Francisco and collect books on and all kinds of things on the history of the West and then start his Bancroft's works. So I was editing to get down to the heart of the matter. But when it comes to the next book, which was coming out of his first wife's letters and his second wife's diaries, that, that book much more reflects more of my writing and my choices. And Emily Bancroft, the first wife, had voluminous letters, hundreds of letters. One set that she had sent to her parents in the 1860s and another to her sister in the 1860s. And again, those letters were meant to be shared generally with the family, sometimes with neighbors. Hearing news from 3,000 miles away in this new state of California was fascinating. Although she did write private on a couple of letters that were meant just for her mother. And then the, the diaries that Matilda wrote, Emily died in 1869, and H.H. H. Bancroft married Matilda in 1876, and she immediately started writing these diaries, the first one being a travel diary, a, a journal of what she was seeing and experiencing. And those obviously were meant to be read by her husband and by other people, not to be published, not to be read widely, but she shared very little of her personal feelings in those books. She was reporting on where they went, who they saw, what the kids were like when she started writing diaries about those children. So those were all valuable for the immense amount of information, but not personal in that sense. And I I thought about that a lot as I was reading what they were writing, how deep were they going into their own feelings? Emily did much more so because they were, letters. And a lot of her feelings were about her longing for her parents, her family back home in Buffalo, New York. They were so, so far away. What was the
0: impetus for this project? I know because I spend a lot of time in historical centers and archives, as we get older, we start to reflect on where we came from. I remember when I spoke with another historian on this podcast, and he talks about his favorite his favorite readers that he meets at events are people in their 70s and 80s who are really thinking about the past and legacy and history. Was that the impetus for you as, as kind of coming to terms or a reckoning with your family history, or was there another driver?
1: Very definitely. And can I ask a question that you might edit? How, how old are you?
0: I'm 33.
1: 33. So that is so great that you're so interested in history. And I feel that I and certainly people are drawn to history at a younger age and become history majors and historians, but what you're asking about is how people take more of an interest perhaps in their own family history and go into it. And I would say most of us are very busy with our own lives, our work, our families, and it wasn't until I turned 50 that I felt that I had time to set aside after having spent three decades teaching to really begin to look into my own family history and of course it's super rich because HH H. Bancroft was a historian and he saved all of these papers i'm very sure that he saved the papers of emily and if you you see i when in the book i have a picture of how they were bound with gold lettering letters from emily to her parents and How many people can say they have their family letters and papers bound and saved in libraries, no less? So once I became aware that these rich sources of information were available, I was turned on to wanting to do something with them. And especially because I had been teaching for decades and I I was a little bit burned out of what I was writing on my students' papers as an English and writing instructor for all of those years. So once I had this opportunity, I just snatched it up. I was also amazed by what I was seeing in these women's writing and what they were telling about life in the 1860s and 70s and 80s. It was really fascinating to see how they described their experiences.
0: So you had the ample evidence and you also had the time I I think I'm starting to describe motive, opportunity for a crime, but, you know, you had all those pieces in place and then it just became a natural impetus for you to want to start some projects. What did you, I guess another way of asking what I just asked, but a little more directly is what did you hope to gain from this activity?
1: I would say Knowledge. I mean, that's a good question. I I didn't ex- I when I started reading all of these papers, I had no idea that there was going to be a book coming out of this. And actually, an, another motive spring for this was the the impetus was Teresa Salazar at the Bancroft Library, who was the curator of Western Americana. And I love how she kicked me into gear with this. They had just finished a renovation in two thousand eight of the library, and she had Matilda Bancroft's 1876 diary open under a protective glass case in one of the rooms. And she was standing there and she saw me. I'd been to the Bancroft library, but I hadn't hung out there very much at all. And she said, Kim, you have to come in here and read your great-great-grandmother's writing. She was a writer in her own right. And Teresa was very serious and a little chastising. And so that, actually formed how I thought about Matilda as a writer, just because these were private diaries that hadn't been published didn't make her a writer and even a historian. So when I I did start reading these, I did have in mind that this writing had its own importance, but I didn't know what, and I didn't know what I was going to do with all of this work when it started. And then as I be, after I looked at Matilda's diaries, I went down to UC San Diego where Emily's letters are because that's where her descendants ended up in the San Diego area and I was reading her letters and was even more amazed and little by little I just thought gosh would other people be interested in how they were describing their lives and what was going on and you know certainly I had a and in with the Bancroft library because they were the wives of this famous historian and this legacy that he had as a collector but i also wanted these to be valued for what women's voices were saying and often the women behind the men have a lot to do with the success of the men
0: mm. well and i appreciate so much because there's so many invisible women Throughout history, that are not in the historical record, but these women are. They're not invisible because they have, there's documentation, there's evidence, there's artifacts that we can pull from. And we need to redirect our interest to including everybody in these stories. And I want, eventually, I'm going to come back to this question of. Uh, thinking about HH H. Bancroft's legacy kind of before and after these projects. We'll we'll circle back to that in a little bit. But let's let's start with the first book. Let's start with the uh, literary industries. Can you just give us a brief sketch of who H.H. H. Bancroft was? Just in real brief, most of the listeners will have heard the name, but maybe and they are probably familiar with some of those giant tomes, but they maybe don't know the man behind, and I use behind ironically, behind those tomes.
1: Well, he was behind them in more than one way. He came from Granville, Ohio of Puritan upbringing. His family had had meaning they had come from Puritan, Massachusetts, migrated to the West in, in Ohio poor farming family. So he did not have a chance to go to high school or college and instead went to Buffalo where his sister had moved with her husband, who was a bookseller. So that's how H.H. got involved in the bookselling business. And then in 1852, just a couple of years after the gold rush had really taken off, he was asked by his brother-in-law to bring crates of books to California to sell. And he tells an amusing story in his literary industries, his 1890 autobiography about awaiting the books to arrive in San Francisco and going into the gold fields where his brother and father were and realizing very quickly that there was much more to be made in selling books than in breaking rocks to get gold. So he was very enterprising, very ambitious. He became an excellent bookseller and opened his store in San Francisco and eventually made some good money doing that. In 1859, he went back to Buffalo to restock his supply and met Emily Ketchum, asked her to marry him, and she came back across the country, which people should realize to travel across the country in 1859, unless you wanted to take months in a wagon coming across by land, meant taking six weeks to go down one coast by a steamer to the Isthmus of Panama, across and then up the next coast. So she was adventurous. They lived there in San Francisco and traveled quite a bit and he was continuing to build his enterprises that was not now just selling books, but selling stationery, a printing shop, publishing. And then Emily died in 1869, which crushed HH very much. He wrote about that as well but he continued to grow his his industries his literary industries and by then he had started collecting everything he could find on the history of the west he became obsessed with the fact that this was now a new country with things developing all over the coast the the whole pacific coast so he had maps and pamphlets and oral histories government documents all kinds of things and that's what actually became his library that eventually, I think, became his greatest legacy there.
0: Yeah. In, the so in that century. sense, he's often referred to as a historian, but maybe a more accurate term would be a, a, a really a developer of one of the great archives of the 19th century.
1: I, I think of that library as his greatest legacy. Now, he did do quite a bit of writing, too. And then by the mid-1870s, he decided, well, what am I going to do with these now... Six thousand items that I have that quickly grew to sixteen thousand items. He decided that he wanted to write a history of the Pacific West, and he first thought about doing that in encyclopedia form, and then landed on the the idea of focusing on each state and certain regions. And he could not do what he wanted to do all by himself, so he hired research assistants and writers who helped write these volumes and. One of the controversies about him that I'm open about and most people understand is that though it says Bancroft works on the title of the 39 volumes, many of them were written by other people who mimicked a certain style and made his his histories possible.
0: Hmm. Let's jump into literary industries. I. A while back, I interviewed the director of the Mark Twain Center, and he laughingly said that he still hasn't finished Mark Twain's autobiography because it is so long. What was it like to actually read the full scope of literary industries?
1: It was fun. I think he is a very good writer, and I think he actually wrote most of literary industries himself. He had to, it was his autobiography, and his wife, Matilda, did help edit. But once I started reading it, because i wanted to learn about when matilda was referring to all of these people and places in her diaries i realized i don't even know who these people are she was referring to sister kate and i had never heard of kate in the family so i thought alright go back to the big tome the the man's big book and i found him witty i found him inspirational he had a lot of wisdom in there and his story was fascinating about what he did when he was trying to come across country, even growing up in, in this very strict religious upbringing was all laced with a certain irony and, and sardonic humor. And it was funny because I have my father, Paul Bancroft III, from whom I'm descended, the, the Paul senior child of Matilda and H.H. My father, Paul III, and my three brothers were all interested in this project that I was starting to read H.H. Bancroft's Autobiography, and they all had copies. And I said, "Let's read it together, and I'll, I'll post some of the quotes online, and we'll share the wisdom of the patriarch." And about a hundred pages in, they said, "You go, Kim. You can do this." <laughs> can and I said, "All right, I will." And that that then became an opportunity when I met with Charles Fallhaber, the, the director of the Bancroft Library. I said, "God, this is a really actually interesting." book here? And he said, I've always said there's a good short book in there. And so that became a challenge. Kim will make the, the edited version of literary industries. And I did. It's I think it's a really good story about California history as well as his library, which is a fantastic institution. It now has six million items because once it was sold to UC Berkeley in 1905, they continue to grow it and grow it. And there's an amazing diversity of information stored there now.
0: We all have to curate things in our lives, choose what to include and what not to include. Can you give me an example of something that you did not include in your editing of literary industries and why you chose to not include it? We always, I mean, I was just we just ordered some books from my library and there were abridged selections from different novels. And I I I was reading the preface to one and uh, the, the editor didn't really describe the reasoning for not including things. And I think it's important to include that because it is your work as well when you edit it.
1: Well, that's a very good question. And now it's over 10 years since I read the original. So I can't claim to remember everything that I cut out. The The new version is 250 pages and the original was eight hundred but as i was going through it like i i mentioned before there were many passages where hh H. bancroft was letting loose his ire or his his opinions about certain things like newspapers he and and some of it's ironic now how the media of his time the newspapers were coloring certain events and misrepresenting political politicians or other people. And I think he had probably been the victim of some of that that editorializing in newspapers of the, the day, but he could go on for 50 pages about a topic like that. And there were many, many other sources of information about the people who worked in his library. He had a chapter that he called the men on the fifth floor. And one of them was actually a woman I tried to take a few of those people who were crucial to his literary industries and make sure to include them and to have some key information about where they came from. Like Thomas Savage was a very important person in his his enterprise because he had grown up speaking Spanish and could work with the Californios, the Mexican Californians. And So I was trying to be judicious in what information I provided about the people who did so much of the work with and for him. But I, I just couldn't include all of them. So there were always those, those places where I had to leave out information. I remember also he had a lot of information about his own family history, his ancestors. And I thought, OK, that's very interesting for family members. But if this is going to be a book that's going to be of value to people who are interested in the Bancroft Library and in California history, then some of this relatively personal information about the relatives doesn't belong in it.
0: Okay. So fights, foibles, and family lore it seems it seems like good selections. I, I have two more questions about him before we turn to the women that are the focus of our conversation. What What do you ascribe to the source of his... Quote, biblomania. Do you ascribe it to losing his first wife and then thinking about death and legacy and this collection, this need to possess all of these things? Wh- what do you ascribe it to?
1: Well, may I give you his words? Sure. Uh, it actually started in 1859, the, the process. There were still immigrants coming across country by wagon and He wanted to have a geography, an almanac for those people coming across and trying to decide what was the best route and not get caught up like the Donner party. And so he asked one of his clerks to collect everything in his store that he had available in his bookstore. And he said, I was surprised to find so many 50 or 70 items that were books, pamphlets, maps. And he just said that started his interest in, well, what else is out there? I didn't realize there were so many, so so much information about the history of, of the West. And then he decided, part of that became this interest in what was happening in the West and the fact that he himself had seen so much development from the time he arrived in 1852. And he wrote, coming to this coast a boy He has seen it transformed from a wilderness into a garden of latter-day civilization. Vast areas between the mountains and the sea, which were at first pronounced valueless, unfolding into homes of refinement and progress. There is now being planted a civilization destined in time to be superior to any now existing and as to coming millions, if not to those now here. Everything connected with the efforts of the builders of the commonwealths on these shores will be of vital interest. So he had a, a kind of vision that what was happening would be of interest in the future and that it was vitally important to capture that information in any way possible, which I think is a really phenomenal insight.
0: Absolutely. And his work has bolstered the work of historians for you know, a hundred years or more now. And there's a lot of, you know, primary source material in his work that still helps me and guides me sometimes. And I'm trying to understand what was going on. One more question on him. And that's the legacy question before we turn to women. After finishing editing literary industries and finishing the book on his two wives, what 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 did you left? what What was your takeaway on who he was and what his legacy should be?
1: Well, having read a lot about him as well as his, some of his work, I realized that yes, his histories are very valuable for the primary sources, the history of, of California, has several volumes, Utah, Washington, all, all of the volumes, but also... What really ends up being most important is his library, because he, he collected so much material that from the history of Mexico before the Spaniards and the native languages and you know so many things that are really important for resources for people to go to. So I think that, that that's important. And I will say that in subsequent years, having read some other materials, he he definitely had a white supremacist view that was typical of his time. I mean, even in that passage I just read, he talked about this the, these uh, this area being civilized and that there the idea that there was nothing there before because the Indians were not seen as using that land in valuable ways. and, and even the Mexicans were not seen by the white colonizers from the from the east as using, the resources available in California. So I, I think in some respects, it's important to look at that part of his legacy with some suspicion, because I don't think he was right from our perspective today and how he valued Native peoples and Mexicans and, and subsequent immigrants to this land.
0: Okay, we're going to pivot now to the women behind his writing and hopefully put them in front of it. So, let's start with some brief sketches of who these two women were, starting with Emily and then Matilda, and then we'll get into some of the questions that I have.
1: Okay. Emily Ketchum lived in Buffalo and had grown up with a merchant father had been able to go to a boarding school, Miss Miss Porters in Farmington, which says something about her level of education. Girls were not expected to go beyond college, but, Many female educators of the day, including Miss Porter, really wanted their young ladies to be scholars, as she called them. So Emily came with some education. She married H. -H when she was 25, and that was already old to get married back in, in the day in 1859, and came to California. She longed for her family, and that's one theme repeated in her letters. And wanted them to understand what her life was like in California. She had one baby, Kate, in 1860. And after that, she was not able to have any more children. There's evidence in her letters that she probably had a second baby in 1862 that died. And she writes in 1864 from San Francisco about another baby girl that was born alive and died two hours later. And the the letters about her mournful coping with the death of her, her infant is very powerful. It turns out that she probably had kidney disease and probably had diabetes. I was following the forensic trail in her letters to figure that out and actually asked an endocrinologist if, if it looked like that was true. And she ended up in her last year of letters talking about wasting away and great fatigue, uh, lack of eyesight, which points to retinopathy, often associated with diabetes. And so she died. She was not supposed to have any more babies, as she was told in 1864. But she was pregnant again in the fall of 1869 and had written to her parents and said, well, I'm supposed to give birth, and or actually she called it be sick, in February of 1870. And she died in December of 1869. So she left behind the one daughter, Kate, and a very bereaved husband.
0: And then Matilda enters the scene how soon after?
1: Not for another seven years. And HH wrote about why he did not want to be married for the low those many years. And one thing that was always I, you know, his sense of his sense of humor. He wrote about how he felt somebody apparently had said to him that you know, all this time you could be making some, some one person happy. I replied all this time I might be making two persons miserable. So he, he had a very definite sense of what he wanted in a wife. He was at that time in 1876, very engaged with writing the first of his Bancroft's works, which were about the history of the native races. And so he had taken one of them back east and was trying to get academic approval by people who were in some of the eastern colleges. And I believe that's where he met Matilda in New Haven. And she also came from a merchant family. She was 27 when she married him. And she clearly was very engaged, as we can tell from her diaries in the intellectual work of their travels, of his trying to find out about people who had been part of California history. I don't know that much else about her early life, except that she threw herself into being his helpmate in all of his work.
0: Hmm. So how would you contrast them? It seems like they hmm. were part of different periods of time in his life and married them for different reasons. What, what, in what ways are they different from each other?
1: Very much so. And that's a good perception, which I learned in the process of working on this, that they were really married to two different men. Emily married someone who was clearly an interesting person and intellectual, that she was going to have this exciting life and on the, on the West Coast it is kind of bizarre to think that she felt she had to go 3000 miles away to find the man of her dreams, but he clearly loved her very much. And he, she wrote in, in her letters about how devoted he was to her, but she was, she, she didn't write about his work so much. She wrote about some of the men coming home that they would, he would bring them home for lunch or for dinner, for the holidays. And she was certainly concerned about what was going on, but she was more of a, woman who was taking care of the home and the, and the child. When it came to Matilda, she clearly was marrying somebody who was a writer, a historian who had grand visions and ambition, and she wanted to be part of that. And so he wanted clearly, too, to have a wife who was not going to, as he said, sit around on the porches and be concerned with fashion and foppery, but a wife who could help him in his work and not not distract him from what he felt was this stage upon which he had arrived and had this important function in the world and she wanted to be part of that
0: okay let's dig into emily for a little bit and what you learned beyond her illness and ailments that she suffered You've mentioned that you've learned some things about women's toil in the West through through Emily's work and some of the challenges of being a woman in this kind of early days in Western expansion. What did you learn from her?
1: I really saw what strength she had. And I would say so many women who had come out West during that time, that even that trip of six weeks to get to California and the dangers of being on a small ship and She had one quote about watching her child get thrown overboard but had a chain attached to her to reel her back in in a roiling sea, things we we just take for granted traveling across the country nowadays. And even traveling around San Francisco, she talked about the, the dunes and the hills and what it took for women to come up and down. Women were expected to create such a wonderful home environment. And there weren't necessarily a lot of hotels at the time, for example, so she said any, any relatives who are living further away from the city were expected to put up the, the family coming into the city and take care of them. The, the work of going out shopping, of, of cooking, the, the kinds of things we take for granted that you know there were no propane and gas, electric stoves at that time the sewing she was a fabulous seamstress from what I can tell and even in one of the between the letters there was a a scrap of material that she was showing her mother what she was sewing with and so until the mid-1860s she was sewing all by hand and creating these dresses and she talked about what she was sewing for her daughter and for Hubert making pantaloons the work that went into simply just cleaning up around the house when they lived where there were no asphalt driveways there or roads And the, she loved to garden too when she could. And in San Francisco, they lived there for a time. It was dunes. It was sand. And she talked about HH being out in the, in the garden where he was trying to shovel manure into the sand in order to make it into actual dirt and that they would eventually be able to have some vegetables and flowers there. So things that we still like to do today, garden, would be four times as hard as it was then. And you'd bring things by wagon. You know, even getting to church, he was a, a religious person, but getting to church from one of the high dune areas of San Francisco downtown by wagon was difficult under many circumstances. And she wrote home about having to miss out on going to church. So so things that, again, transportation, cooking, sewing, shopping, visiting, everything was much more challenging.
0: Yeah. And there were some interesting things related to concepts of intersectionality with the way she viewed women of other races. Can you talk about that kind of complicated world of different power dynamics between different ethnic groups within the world of women?
1: Definitely. And that was something that I really wanted to bring to this book more modern sensibility and my own social justice sensibility, and looking at how Emily and Matilda and HH would talk about the other. Emily was fortunate at times to be able to hire a girl, she called them girls, and they would help her out as she much needed because she was plagued by these terrible migraine headaches. But even so, she was lucky to have somebody who would often help with the shopping and taking care of her daughter and doing the cleaning and the cooking. But she was very prejudiced against Irish Catholic women. And it was interesting for me to see that that it was so specific that she had this idea that the Irish Catholics were lazier and she couldn't abide by them. A Protestant Irish person was much better for for having in her own household. And at times it it also had to do with the fact that because she was religious, she expected the girl to come in and share in prayers when they were doing that for vespers or whatever. She also had an African-American woman who she really took to named Adelaide and wrote about her as being such an angel and so helpful with Kate. And when she had her headaches and she was the one who stayed the longest with them from what I could tell for over a year. But I also wrote about how we never learn anything about the personal lives of these women. It's not like she's sitting there saying, so Adelaide, what is your husband like? And, and no personal information. And that what wouldn't have been normal for her to ask perhaps and not certainly not to include in her letters but i found it a big hole in her understanding of other races and other ethnic groups
0: now what's one interesting thing that i took away pivoting now to matilda is the dual nature of bancroft's sexism and his patriarchal view of the world but also his the act of marrying someone as competent And brilliant as Matilda. So, how do you square those two things?
1: I love to say, let's embrace our contradictions. Let's Mm. just embrace contradictions because nothing is necessarily black or white. We're all mixed up in many, many ways. And that was very true of H.H. Bancroft. He had superbly patriarchal sexist chauvinist ideas about women. He said, no petticoats in my library. And and writing is not for frail and tender women. So definite about that idea. And yet he not only had one woman in his library, Frances Fuller Victor, who wrote the volume on the history of Oregon, but he clearly also wanted his wife Matilda to be a helper in his work to help him edit and he talked about teaching her how to be a critic of his work and she wrote about how much he enjoyed being able to be a voice in what he was writing and saying and he did not believe that girls needed to go to college whereas his three sons all got to go to Harvard which was spectacular in those days still is but even more so in those days. Yet he assumed that women needed to have some income and he was going to provide an annuity for his daughters. But he also assumed their husbands were going to be the ones who would take care of them. So he he was full of those contradictions. And Matilda seemed to maneuver between what she felt like she could do and couldn't do as well as possible. Mm.
0: And Matilda did some interesting work with Mormons and plural marriage. Can you briefly talk about that?
1: Yes, it was one of the fantastic things that she accomplished. She had come to love doing oral histories and had an opportunity to do one in the Northwest in 1878 when she was traveling there with her husband. But a couple years later, he obviously felt that it would be good to have a woman interviewing women from the Latter-day Saints. And maybe Matilda had convinced him, but She was able to take several dictations from women who had these amazing stories about having come across the the states into the Utah territory, into Salt Lake, and what it was like for them when their husbands said, hey, I'd like to take a second wife. This has now been told to us as an order for the religious good of our community. And the women that Matilda was able to interview talked very honestly about how painful that was, but also how they were able to reconcile that according to their faith. And I, some of the stories that she told, that these women told her that she wrote down are valuable for understanding what it was like in those early days of polygamy and women were trying to wrestle with how to accept a sister wife and the children of these sister wives.
0: Let's take a 10,000 or 20,000 foot perspective and think about historians, the work they do, the people behind the work they do, and specifically male historians. I guess my question would be is, how do we decouple in some ways, the work and the person in some ways? And then also, how do we, how should we reframe the way we look at male historians like H.H. H. Bancroft? Does that question make sense? There's something like a, almost like a philosophical point of view about sex and history that comes out of this work. And I'm just curious if you have thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. And I think it's very related to intersectionality, as you were asking about before, because sex and race are from the perspective of a often white male historian in this case, H.H. H. Bancroft lead to ignoring almost completely the experiences of women and people of color. They're they're there to serve the white men who were predominant in that time. They were the public makers of culture and commerce. And because they were doing these very public acts that were helping create civilization as they understood it, then those who were there to serve them, the women and the Chinese people and the native people and all of the rest of them were were less important. And of course, we've come to see that very differently now. And in the case of somebody like H.H. Bancroft, it's interesting through his writing and the writing of his wives to see how very important the women were, because he talked about being overly sensitive. It crushed him to go have to go into public and to talk to people about his work. Home was a sanctuary for him, and it was hugely important that his wives helped to create that sanctuary, a safe place, especially in the case of Matilda, who could talk very intellectually about the work he was doing and the, the public acts he was trying to participate in, and she was able to to help him in that work. So I I think that the idea that that you know the the male white male historians in particular of the past were making their own way through history without this kind of help is completely erroneous, and that's why it's wonderful to have a few of the the women who have left behind a written trail to show what they participated in as well and helped create the history that we now have available, and we're part of it. You know, the, the things that women did, even though they were seen as unimportant, sewing and, and cooking and taking care of the children. The H.H. H. Bancroft couldn't have had his legacy of his children to lead on what he wanted them to believe about him, were it not written down and taken care of back home.
0: I have a lot of thoughts about what you said. I've recently been... Because I'm interested in 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 the subject, I've been reading this book by Jay Garfield, who's a who's a religious philosopher, and he focuses on Indian and Japanese and Chinese philosophies around Buddhism. And he's got this great book called Losing Ourselves. One of the concepts he talks about is that you know everything takes place within a, a context an environment, and I think that kind of relates to some of the discussions I've had about some of these statues of these historical figures that we put up. And one of the one of the scholars that I talked to said maybe we just don't need statues of people because it's societies that build things and communities that build things. And I think this kind of valorization of these individuals and holding them up makes a lot of sense in our society because we like to have figures that are almost you know, kind of beyond normal human reach. You know, these historians have written these massive books that are important for society. But I think what you're pointing out is that everything that is produced is produced in a context with a lot of influences and a lot of other people behind the scenes. And our desire to simplify the world leads us to leave things out, leave people out, leave contributions out. And that's what I appreciate so much about your book is that it complicates it. It's not a simple narrative anymore because there were these powerful women with him through it all. And I just think it's a beautiful story that you tell in that way. And I think I think that's a lot of us are coming to terms with kind of like letting go of some of those old idols of the you know, great man of history or whatever. And it's hard because those are so instilled in our history curriculum and the books that are still popular. I mean, you look at, you know, some of the most popular books that, you know, there's a recent biography of Samuel Adams that just came out recently. That was a wonderful book, but it's still this kind of like, you know, still digging into this concept of the great men of history. And I think, I think we still need to talk about individuals, but we need to talk about individuals in their environments. And I think that's what you do really well. So I very much appreciate your book. And I want to close with book recommendations. What are two or three books you'd recommend to listeners?
1: Well, I have a lot.
0: Okay, well, just give as many as you can because I love it.
1: Can I say one other thing too, relating to what you said? Absolutely. I also, and I had mentioned, I think that I had done a lot of oral histories. I started doing more oral histories with people. And one I did was with Priscilla Hunter, who's an elder of the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians. And one of the things she said that was really interesting about learning about her ancestors' history and and how we value what people contribute to our society. Now, I, I looked at one of the books on my list is James Rolls, California Indians: The Changing Image, because I learned a lot about Native Americans from that about how they were seen and how wrongly whites who came here saw them. And part of what they did wrong was to say, well, they didn't have civilization. They didn't, weren't producing anything. And Priscilla Hunter said that she, what she had learned about her ancestors, the Pomo in this area, were that they had so many very clever ways of living with what they had around them, what they did with the acorn to have as a basic food source, how they traveled from the inner valley here where I live to the coast and bring back seaweed and dried fish, how they were able to make baskets, things that helped produce their their livelihoods as well as their ceremonies and the religion, the civilization that they had. And so it's been important, I think, another way of trying to rescue some of those voices from the past to be able to understand the complexity of how people lived that were completely ignored in past times. So I recommend James Rawls, California Indians. I was also very impressed by American Genocide, United States and the California Indian Catastrophe by Benjamin Madley, which really went into the horrors and the primary sources that showed the horrors of the attempt to exterminate Indians. Towers of Gold, How One Jewish Immigrant Named Isaias Hellman Created California by Francis Dinkelspiel is an amazing biography. And again, a great man, but also she's an excellent historian in terms of bringing the context of the richness of what what LA was like, Los Angeles in 1852 when Isaiah Hellman arrived and what it was like to live through the earthquake in 1906. And another book that really impressed me was No Turning Back the History of Feminism and the Future of Women by Estelle Friedman, because she really helps put into context some of these issues about how women have been seen historically and how we need to change the lens to be able to appreciate them in, in different ways.
0: Well, my final question is, what's, what's next for you? What's the next project you're working on?
1: That's a good question. I am going to continue trying to do oral histories with people and help them write their stories in their books, especially those who think, well, I don't really have a story to tell. And then when you hear about what they've done with their lives, it's quite amazing, which I would say, is true for you, too. I really appreciate what you're doing with your podcast and all of the activism that you're doing as a teacher and a community leader. I think those are exactly what we were talking about, the kinds of things that people take for granted. Oh, well, he's out there, you know, doing X, Y, and Z, but that's that's what the fabric of our communities really need, and especially young people. I say that as somebody who was doing all kinds of crazy activities as a history as an English teacher in a high school. And those kinds of efforts to uphold the community are really, really valuable. So more power to you and may you get to keep telling your story as well.
0: Well thank you for the kind words and thank you for doing this interview.
1: You're so welcome.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash history of We'll see you in our next episode.